Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. I'm excited to welcome Washtenaw County's new prosecutor. He's the first prosecutor in over 20 years to uh, get elected. I think the other person was there 24, 27 years. We'll, we'll find that out. But Ellie Savitt is a prosecutor who has a really unique background from teaching to working for, the, for a couple of different United States Supreme Court justices and lots of things in between. So I'm really excited to talk to him today. So let's welcome Prosecutor Savitt to Open Mic. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're gonna hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Hi there. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So happy to have you. I've been watching uh, your rise to fame, let's say, over the last year since you've been running for a prosecutor in Washington County. And, and that, I mean, I didn't remember the exact number, but there was a prosecutor there for how many years before you? 20, 28 years. Uh, so, right. so it was 20, 28 years and, and we'd never uh, actually had too much of a competitive election during those 28 years. So that is a ton of time. So you took over an office 28 years. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a generation. It feels like, um, how was that taking over an office where there'd be the same person running an office for 28 years? I'm really curious. Like, I mean, it had to have been, uh, you've had to have been made some major shifts since you've gotten there, but tell me what that was like. Yeah, you know, and and uh, look, look, I ran very forthrightly on a message and a platform that change was needed in our prosecutor's office. And, uh, you know, uh, it's it's something that I think was important here in Washington, but also we're seeing this not just at a state level, but at a national level as well. People are really rethinking how we're doing prosecution and how the criminal legal system is functioning. Uh, but I got to say, uh, you know, I, I am tremendously fortunate, and we are tremendously fortunate here in Washtenaw County to uh, have an office that uh, respected uh, the direction that voters opted for uh, in the August and November elections of last year. And though, you know, the majority of my staff uh, are folks that, you know, previously worked under my predecessor, uh, they are all in on change and all in on doing things differently. Uh, obviously, you know, we had some turnover. That is to be expected at the start of any administration. But the folks that did stay, the folks that chose to stay, and the new people we were able to attract into Washtenaw County are uh, really thinking carefully uh, in their day-to-day -day work and are committed to doing things differently and to building a justice system that really really uh, meets the values of Washtenaw County, prioritizes equity and rehabilitation. Um, uh, and, you know, so I couldn't be more grateful for the folks that we have working uh, here. And I, you know, and I mean that wholeheartedly. Our team here is wonderful. Well, I mean, you're, 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 the campaign you ran was all based on inclusion and learning from different groups that I want to get to in a second. But in my intro, I didn't say you were born and raised in Ann Arbor, uh, University of Michigan Law School. 
um, clerked for two United States Supreme Court justices. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Uh, I had the great opportunity to work for just, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. I mean, as a lawyer, I mean, you got to tell me a little bit, like, what was that like? That I mean, that had to have been uh, amazing working for those icons. Oh, it was it, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. So, you know, I, you know, I, I clerked during the 2014 uh, 15 Supreme Court term. It was a big term. Uh, you know, the same-sex marriage case was up at the court that term. Uh, there right. was a big case about the Affordable Care Act. You know, we had some interesting uh, uh, cases about campaign finance and the like. So it was an action-packed term. And, and I spent, you know, uh, probably 95% of my time uh, working for Justice Ginsburg, who was actively uh, on the court at that time. Wow. Uh, and, you know, she's wonderful. She was an idol of mine before I ever thought that I might uh, have the chance to breathe the same air that she breathed. So, you know, every every day, you know, you're, you're, you're standing there in chambers talking to her about cases. And, and you know, sometimes you just have to take a step back and uh, wonder, you know, uh, how lucky uh, you are to have gotten that opportunity. But then, you know, retired Justice O'Connor, I, I, I also was assigned to, to, to her and to help her out with some of her post um, uh, judicial projects, one of which was promoting civic education, which is something that's near and dear to my heart mm -hmm. uh, as a former eighth grade U.S. history teacher. So, you know, to have the tremendous opportunity to work for and to learn from uh, just an icon in Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, as well as, you know, to work for the, the first woman on the United States Supreme Court, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and, and, you know, somebody who has dedicated her post judicial tenure to uh, improving civic education, which is something that's uh, really important to me, it was just the honor of a lifetime and something that uh, I'll cherish forever. What uh, what an experience. I mean, I have about 200 questions on that, but I don't I don't think we're going to have time to go dive into that. But the the same sex marriage case, wasn't that a Michigan case? So it was. So it was a consolidation of four cases. Okay. Uh, they were consolidated in front of the Sixth Circuit. Uh, so there was a there was a case from Michigan, a case from Ohio, a case from Kentucky, and a case from Tennessee that were all consolidated together. I will uh, say one thing about those cases. You know, there was a race to file at the Supreme Court uh, among all of the lawyers that were litigating those cases. And of course, as a Michigander, I would have loved the Michigan case to be the lead uh, name on it. Um, you know, Ohio ended up filing first, so Obergefell versus Hodges is uh, the name on the case. But the other okay. one was, uh, you know, out of out of Kentucky, which would have been a very good name for the case, too. Uh, I kid you not, the name of the case was Love versus Bashir. So, uh, you know, we were this close from having that seminal <laughs> case uh, about love uh, actually be called love. But, you know, it's it, it's Obergefell and, and, you know, very, very, of course, worthy uh, plaintiff and, and just a milestone in, in uh, American jurisprudence. I, I mean, I, I smell lots of books coming out of you one day. Oh, oh, that year that you spent there, I mean, so, some of the most important decisions in the last at least decade, if not more. Wow. It was, a, anyway. it was a great year to be there and especially working for Justice Ginsburg. You know, usually you're working for Justice Ginsburg and you're expecting to write uh, a number of a really important dissents. We didn't really have any my year uh, and mm. that was because she was in the majority in uh, all the big all the big cases. I mean, I was, I'm struck to ask you about, you know, the, 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 the last months of her life. Um, when, I mean, I don't, you, I mean, I, I doubt you were in contact with her. If you were, let me know. But, you know, the way that last year went down with, with uh, our former president getting that, getting that a nominee, 
getting that to get that getting that appointment i should say i mean I, I don't know if i'll ever be able to forget that that was such a horrible way it went down i'm sure for her legacy it was sad and do you have any opinions on all that you know um i'll just say that 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 uh, obviously uh, justice ginsburg is somebody that has meant a tremendous deal to me personally she really treated her clerks like family. She would, you know, check in on us. She'd have reunions every couple of years. Uh, we'd always, you know, uh, go back and see her in chambers whenever, you know, uh, our, our travels took us to DC, not just mm -hmm. me, but all of uh, my, my co-clerks. And losing her uh, just as a person was devastating. Uh, you know, I miss her greatly. And she was just, just somebody, uh, you know, whose void can't be filled. Um, but uh, you know that the, the pain of that and the sorrow of that uh, was was exacerbated by uh, you know the fact that she was replaced on the Supreme Court by you know somebody who uh, you know may well uh, participate in the destruction of her legacy. Uh, mm. That's really painful, and I know it's something that you know uh, the justice, of course was striving to avoid and uh, trying to hold on. Uh, you know, I know uh, definitely through the end of Trump's presidency and to have come so close, um, but not be able to make it and to have that confirmation rushed through, uh, it really exacerbated that, 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 that personal pain that I know a lot of us are feeling and, um, you know, that a lot of folks in the country uh, were feeling as well. So it was a yeah. horrible time. I, I don't know what else yeah. to say about it. No, there is, and you and you put it beautifully, and and I know I put you on the spot with that one, but I haven't actually been able to talk to somebody like you about that, and and thank you for answering it the way you did. Um, you know, for our listeners and viewers um, who who aren't familiar with someone of your caliber working for a Supreme Court judge, you know, when somebody clerks for a Supreme Court judge, you know, you really had your pick of potential jobs um, after that. Uh, experience and 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 what strikes me is um, that you chose to come back, uh, follow in the things that you were doing before that you love to do in your life, and, and took an appointment working for the city of Detroit to help public education and all kinds of things, and forego a job that would have paid you hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, to take a job that you, you know really felt compelled to take. And I just commend you for that. But I'd like you to you know, tell me about that, uh, if there was even a hard decision there or, or what that process was like. Well, you know, uh, when I finished my clerkship, um, I was sort of at a, at a fork in the road in terms of my career. I'd, I'd been in DC for several years. You know, before I got my clerkship on the US Supreme Court, I, I worked for a judge on uh, the, the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, and I was in private practice for a couple of years in DC as well. And I was really at the fork in the road, uh, you know, in terms of what I wanted to do with my career. And, you know, as I thought through it, I, I realized, you know, my heart was in Michigan. I, I wanted to be back here where I grew up, and I wanted to be in public service. I, you know, I wanted to use um, uh, what talents I have and, and uh, you know, dedicate my career 
uh, to public interest and to, to helping people. And, and, you know, when I graduated law school, I never once uh, considered uh, entering into local government, uh, you know, working for an uh, entity like the city of Detroit. But the opportunity arose, uh, you know, it was a time in uh, the history and the and and the sort of lifespan of the city, where there was a lot of uh, really fascinating stuff going on around the Detroit schools, you know, uh, there were you know there were major construction projects and there were equity considerations there. There were you know lawsuits uh, to file in the public interest, and that's what I wanted to do. That's uh, sort of where my heart was. Um, so you know, it's always. Uh, you, you know, you tell your 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 mom and dad and and your family and your significant others that you're you're turning down hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, they, they they give you a little bit of a side eye, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, I have to wake up in the morning and love what you're doing. I I think that's what it's about. Um, and it was a tremendous opportunity and loved um, uh, every minute that I spent at the city of Detroit. It, I mean, hugely impressive. Told me a ton about you and your character. Um, so I was it, I just very impressed with that. Um, and, and the way you ran your campaign, you know, there was a, recently an article that was sent to me about how you, you know, you talked to every major group that you could talk to, uh, and got their opinions and heard their voices about what's, what's wrong with the criminal justice system in Washtenaw County? How can we make this better? And it sure sounds like you took almost everybody's opinion into account when you were setting up your platform. But I'd like to, I'd like to hear about that because you it, when I read this article I'm like how is this guy going to make everybody happy and it, and I know you probably didn't but it sure but it sure sounds like you did so I mean I've never heard anybody running a campaign like that so why don't you t take me through that sure well you're never going to make everybody happy uh, and you know if everybody agreed uh, and it was easy to do it would have been done a long time ago but. Uh, what I'll say is, uh, you know, I, I didn't go looking for uh, this particular race. I actually got recruited to run by a group of activists mm. who were looking for a challenger to the then incumbent. And, you know, they I I'd sort of built something of a name for myself. I've been involved with some, you know, major civil rights cases and had been involved in the, in the local Democratic Party. And they came to me and they said, you should think about running for prosecutor. And I'll tell you, my initial reaction was, no, I don't want to be a prosecutor. That's not, uh, you know, what what. Uh, I, I want to do with my career. Um, but the truth of the matter is, though I hadn't been a prosecutor before taking this job, I'd seen the cascading consequences of the criminal legal system uh, really at every point in my career, dating back to when I was a public school teacher uh, in the New York City public schools. And I saw kids that were justice involved, kids whose families were justice involved and were really struggling to move on uh, from that. Uh, you know, I saw it uh, in, in private practice. I did some immigration cases, uh, you know, where people that had lived in this country for decades uh, were facing deportation for a crime that, you know, if you or I committed it as citizens, uh, wouldn't even warrant jail time. Uh, you know, I did some criminal defense work uh, at the uh, at the appellate level. And then in the city of Detroit, you know, one thing that just struck me was how many people were trying to move on from these past criminal convictions, uh, trying to get a new job. These could be years, decades old, uh, but couldn't get a job, couldn't get housing uh, because we had not allowed them to move on with their lives after having paid their debt, right? So I'd seen the criminal legal system at the center of so much inequity and, and injustice. Uh, and I started thinking about it when I was approached. And I said, you know, uh, it matters who's pulling the levers. It matters who's making these discretionary decisions that prosecutors make. I've seen this throughout my career. And so, you know, uh, I went back and I said, look, 
I'll do it. I'll run. But here's the platform <laughs> I'm going to run on. And I don't know if it's going to work. Uh, but here, but that's what I believe. Uh, and, you know, this group of activists said, no, you're exactly what we want. So now you said you'd, you'd do it. So now you have to do it. So which, which I did. <laughs> uh, and, and so I launched my campaign and here I am. But what I'll, what I'll, what I'll tell you is, you know, it's Washtenaw County. Uh, so a Republican wasn't going to win uh, in November. And indeed, after I won the primary in August, there wasn't uh, a Republican that that, that was uh, contesting the race. So when I won the primary uh, in August of last year, I knew that I was going to be the next prosecutor. And uh, we were lucky enough to have that long uh, transition mm. time. And despite the fact that I'd ran openly on on what I believed in, uh, you know, not seeking cash bail, turning the page on the war on drugs, building an immigration conscious prosecutor's office. You know, I, those were the headlines of my campaign. But, uh, you know, then it comes time to actually put those promises into practice. And that's where we we pulled together 12 separate working groups. Uh, and we had folks from a variety of different perspectives. You know, on our cash bail working group, for example, we had law enforcement. We had uh, lawyers from the bail project, from the ACLU. We had prosecutors, defense lawyers, um, you know, uh, advocates for survivors of domestic violence uh, who had some concerns about, you know, uh, what replaces cash bail. And we had frank and honest discussions, uh, but ultimately they made the, uh, the the outcome, the policies that we put into place mm. much stronger because we got ahead of, you know, any sort of blind spots that we may have had. Uh, and also, you know, bring folks together. And, you know, I'm not going to say everybody agrees with every word that's put down on paper, but we got in all those work groups to a point where, you know, people said, okay, I'm comfortable with this uh, at least. And, you know, th that's what it's all about and you know i think that a lot of our early success here has been not because you know i had any brilliant idea but because the community came together and co-created these policies that we've now been uh putting into place for nearly nine months so amazing and, and you know one of my first things i want to talk to you about is about cash bail because i've been a lawyer 30 years we had a couple young ladies who was working who were working in the cash uh in the bell project detroit and this is last year, maybe a year and a half ago already. And they came into my office and we did a episode on the bail system. And I, I don't practice in criminal law. And it was, it was such an eye-opening thing for a lawyer. And I know it was for all my listeners and viewers. We had tens of thousands of people watch that episode. But, what, you know, you are the first prosecutor I know. And I know in the article that there are other select prosecutors around the country who are doing what you have so courageously done. And I think you're the first county in Michigan who've done it, who has done it, um, but you basically eliminated cash bail. Will you explain to our listeners and viewers, you know, you know, basically what the history of our cash bail program has been in America for the last hundred years and, and why you believe so strongly that cash bail should be done away with, which you've actually done in Washington. Yeah, sure. So, so, so let's you know start from uh, the basics, which is uh, cash bail is a system in which before you are tried and convicted of a crime, uh, you're arrested, uh, you're held in jail, and you're told that you can leave, you can go free pending trial, uh, but only if you come up with a certain amount of money out of your bank account. Now, if you really drill down and think about it. What that means is that a poorer person or a working class person who may be accused of a crime that's uh, not too serious, that doesn't impose a serious public safety risk, that person can sit in jail 
for days or weeks or months simply because they can't afford to pay to get out. At the same time, a wealthier person, uh, you know, a wealthier person who may pose a real serious danger to the community, right? They may be able to buy their way out the next day simply because they have money in their bank account. So no matter where you come down on sort of pretrial detention, a cash bail system shouldn't satisfy anybody. Uh, I want to make this clear. Getting rid of cash bail, moving beyond cash bail doesn't mean you just open the jailhouse doors and let everybody free pending trial. I do think there are people uh, that pose an imminent risk to the community and those people should be held pending trial. But the amount of money in your bank account shouldn't be what determines that. So mm -hmm. getting rid of cash bail means this. We'll continue to try to hold uh, the folks that are dangerous, the folks that pose a threat to the community, whether they're poor or whether they're wealthy. But if you don't pose a danger to the community, you haven't been convicted of anything yet. You haven't had your due process. You should be able to move on with your life, to continue providing for your family and not be held in jail just because you lack access to resources. I'll tell you this. Uh, we think about the cash bail system and the focus is uh, often on the, the people that are sitting in jail. But it goes far beyond that because uh, if you are poor or working class, if you're working class and you work a shift job, there's been research on this. The data shows that if you work a shift job uh, and you spend even a couple days in jail because you can't afford your bond, you're more likely than not to lose your job. Mm. Now, what happens if you lose your job? You're very likely to lose your home. What happens if you're raising a family? Your kids are going to be homeless. They may have to go live with relatives. There's going to be instability. Uh, almost certainly, they're going to have to switch schools. Uh, the data shows us, by the way, that switching schools in the middle of the year uh, is the equivalent of losing six months of academic growth. So it's literally intergenerational. And all of it ties back to just uh, a wealth-based classification. You're being held there because you don't have the resources to pay to get up. Now, you asked about the history, uh, and I'm glad you asked about that. I was uh, you know, running in, running in an academic-oriented uh, uh, community like Washtenaw County is. I remember at one of my first events, somebody said, why do we have cash bail in the first place? So I did some research on it. And it dates <laughs> back like so much in our criminal system to what they were doing in England uh, you know, in the 1700s and, and before. Uh, but I don't think that if uh, we were putting together a criminal justice system from scratch today, that cash bail would ever pass muster. It's just so obviously inequitable and doesn't really promote public safety because, again, wealthy people that have money can get out even if they're dangerous. So what we've moved towards in Washington County is we don't see cash bail at all. We seek to impose appropriate non-monetary conditions, including holding people, uh, if we think there's no other option to uh, ensure public safety. But the size of your bank account doesn't play a role in that. So you just got rid of the money element and you're you're looking at the person. And is this person a danger to society? If so, let's let's hold them. Or if we let them go, let's put a tether on them or let's get supervision or whatever. But it doesn't have to do with money and it doesn't which takes out the fact if they could afford it or not, which takes out the fact if they're rich or poor. Exactly. Exactly. And I want to be clear. Wow. We don't seek it. We haven't sought cash bail, which requires an upfront uh, payment in a single case since I've been prosecuted. That doesn't mean cash bail has never been imposed. It's ultimately up to the magistrate. And, you know, sometimes it, it will happen that we're advocating to hold somebody without bond. Uh, and, you know, the defense 
council uh, actually wants a bond, right? Uh, because it allows their, their their client the opportunity to get out. So we don't seek it. Uh, ultimately, the decision, like everything else, is up to the, the, the judicial branch, but we have not sought it in a single case uh, since I've been prosecutor. And, and what I will say is, you know, uh, the folks that are in jail, by and large, in Washtenaw County are, are, are the folks that I think really do pose some uh, public safety threat. Uh, and so we're not seeing people held anymore, uh, you know, on a thousand dollars cash bail for driving with a suspended license, which was the state of affairs uh, just a few years ago in, in Washtenaw County. So the numbers must be way down in the, in the county jails. They, they are. And I, you know, but, I, but, but I'm always, uh, I always want to make sure that we give credit where credit's due to other actors in the system. When COVID hit in Washtenaw County, and this is before I was elected, uh, the sheriff and the chief judge uh, worked together uh, to make sure that, you know, uh, in light of the public health crisis, that uh, the only folks that were sitting in jail, which can be a hotbed for transmission, were those who really needed to be there, which was great. It was a, you know, there's no question in my mind that that quick action, which was, uh, you know, something that was uh, uh, spurred by a, a gubernatorial executive order, that absolutely saved lives. Uh, now we're in a we're in a, in a spot where we're saying, okay, you know, uh, we were able to do that and make sure that the only people that sat in jail during a pandemic were those who really needed to be there. That should be the case always. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, we well, do it I, COVID, but we should do it always. You know, I, I remember. I don't have the exact statistics in front of me, but they blew me away. The statistics of people who who sat in jail pending a trial and the ones who were able to get out pending a trial and the better results that people get when they're home with their families, when they're able to seek, you know, uh, appointments face-to-face -face with their lawyers in their offices, at their homes, where it was so much less, you know, less convictions when they were home, which, which told me a lot because people plead guilty to get out of jail, even if they didn't do it all the time. And I think you're eliminating an element of that, um, which, is, which is just another amazing reason why to do it. There, there's there's no question about it. And uh, I'll also emphasize one other point, um, which is, you know, I, I, I've often been asked, uh, you know, how do you know that a that moving beyond a cash bail system is going to work? And the answer is because other jurisdictions have done it. Uh, Washington, D.C. got rid of cash bail in 1992. Uh, the state of New Jersey got rid of it in 2017. And New Jersey is actually a very interesting uh, case study because what happened in New Jersey uh, after they got rid of cash bail is that the crime rate plummeted. Now, anybody that sits up here and tells you that the crime rate uh, goes up or down just because of one thing or the other thing uh, is probably either doesn't know what they're talking about uh, or is misinformed, uh, right? It's a complicated uh, set of phenomena that, ca that cause crime rates to go up and down. But criminologists have studied this and they look at New Jersey and they actually ascribe the falling crime rate uh, in large part to the fact that they got rid of cash bail because what they saw a drop in was crimes of desperation. The types of crimes that you would expect people to commit if, you know, they had lost their job as a result of being out on wow. bail. Uh, you know, if they were forced to provide for their family in some other way. So, uh, you know, not only is it something that promotes a, a fairer justice system for the reason you mentioned, because sometimes people will plead to something just to get out because they have no other way. But ultimately, in the long run, the best evidence uh, does suggest not only that uh, getting rid of cash bail is not inconsistent with public safety, but that it actually promotes public safety. 
I didn't know that. And that's fascinating. And, and the one last issue that I want to talk about, about the bail system, when I was in law school, they, you know, they would teach us the bail was, you know, so people would show up to court, right? They're going to give $500 or $1,000 or $5,000 or $10,000 or a million dollars if they can afford it to guarantee that that person's going to show up to court. That's what I remember walking away from law school thinking, but the research and the statistics show that's not the case. People are showing up 90 plus percent with or without, I don't know if with or without is the right way to say this question, but that the cash bail is not determinative of whether or not they're going to show up. Is that what you're finding in Washington? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and you know, th th this is something that's been uh, demonstrated over and over again in jurisdictions across the country. Uh, having uh, the court hold on to an upfront cash pay cash uh, payment, that's not what motivates people to come to court. If you really want to increase uh, court appearance rates, things like uh, making sure that folks have transportation, uh, to uh, to court, things like things like childcare, even just text reminders, uh, do much better at increasing appearance rates uh, than slapping a cash bond on somebody. Uh, and you know, you mentioned the folks at the bail project. That's exactly what they do. And for that reason, their clients who don't have a monetary stake in the game, uh, their clients have higher appearance rates uh, than folks that are just out on bond, uh, without those types of assistance. So uh, it's not really needed. I will say sometimes, you know, if you really think somebody needs a monetary incentive, fine, you don't need to require an upfront cash payment, right? Uh, you can just say, if you don't show up, then you'll owe this oh, one. It's yeah. called a, a unsecured bond or, a, you know, whatever you hear the phrase, like a $5,000 personal recognizance bond, that means you don't have to put up the money, but if you do skip, uh, you know, then, that, then right. we're going to charge you that. Uh, but that's far preferable to, you know, saying that you have to have the resources available to put this up on up front, uh, because that really is wealth-based uh, discrimination. And it's not something that any of us should be comfortable with. You know, all the statistics point that you're right. And, and, you know, you, are there other counties in Michigan that have done this yet? We are the only one uh, that have done this so far. Um, okay. So, uh, I, I know that a couple other counties are, are, are looking at the issue, um, but, but but we're the only ones that have done it so far. Well, that's amazing. I mean, look at you're 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 battling 200 plus years of uh, criminal justice system and, and the rules that we've lived by, and the fact that you had the guts to do it sounds like you had the backing of the judges and the and the and the police, and the fact that the numbers are are all still good and that people are showing up to court. It's just God, it's such a no-brainer, and I'm just—I'm so happy that you did that. It makes me—it makes me thrilled, and hopefully, uh, other counties will follow suit really soon. Well, thank you. I, I, I hope <laughs> so. Let's let's talk about—I mean, other things that you've um, changed since you've been in, in Washington. What's the next biggest thing you'd say after the bail um, situation that that you have? Um, kind of reverse course on or change the trajectory of your office? Uh, you know, I, I'm often asked this question, and I think actually the most uh, meaningful change that we made was actually the very first policy that I put into place, which was on January 1st, uh, you know, uh, the first day that I was in office, uh, I rescinded all of the previous zero tolerance policies that were maintained uh, by my predecessor. And I, and I want to talk a little bit about what that means. Zero tolerance policies are these policies where, uh, you know, 
prosecutors who are elected politicians um, uh, use to get elected, right? They're great bumper sticker slogans. Um, uh, and, and I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a zero tolerance for gun crimes policy prior to me taking office. Now, I want to make this very clear. Uh, I take gun violence very seriously. If people are shooting at one another, I take that very seriously. Um, but when you have a blanket policy that prevents folks from looking at the unique human story that is at the center of every single case, uh, you're really not doing justice at all. And I'll tell you a story from uh, before I took office that I think illustrates this. Here in Washtenaw County, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a woman who was transitioning. And uh, like many people who are transitioning, uh, she, was, she was dealing with uh, depression. And uh, one night she told her partner uh, that she was going to take a gun uh, out to a nearby park and was going to end her life. Mm. The partner uh, was concerned and called the police uh, to do a wellness check to, to stop the woman from killing herself, to stop her partner from killing herself. And the police did exactly what they should do. They responded. They found her sitting in a parked car, uh, you know, in the, in, in the nearby park. Uh, she did have a gun. And uh, they were able to prevent her from harming herself. Mm. But she had a gun in the car. Uh, and she didn't have a CPL. Uh, and so she was charged with carrying a concealed weapon. Now, that was charged as a felony by my predecessor because they had zero tolerance for gun crimes. And this is technically a gun crime. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But if you think about what that does, what's the next person who has a family member or a loved one that may be dealing with depression, that may be suicidal? What are they going to do? Mm. Are they going to call the police as we'd hope they would do and say, you know, please try to uh, save my loved one's life? Or are they going to hesitate to make that call because they know that if they do that, the prosecutor's office could bring down the hammer of a felony charge on their loved one that just needed help. So look, we're we're still prosecuting the shootings, right? We're still prosecuting, of course, you know, the, the, the crimes that harm the community. But when you have these blanket policies, it prevents your prosecutors from looking at the human story that is at the center of every case. And there were a whole host of these policies around when you could offer plea deals and when people got an opportunity at mental health treatment or substance use treatment uh, and when they didn't and when they could you know, emerge from the process if they did get treatment with a clean criminal record. And I said, I'm getting rid of all those. I'm, a, I'm empowering our assistant prosecuting attorneys and I'm expecting our assistant prosecuting attorneys to take a look at the human story that is at the center of every case and to make uh, the decisions that best promote rehabilitation, ensure public safety, and are in the interests of justice. And that has guided every single thing that we've done um, throughout this office since I've been prosecutor. So it's a really overarching policy. But, you know, uh, thankfully, uh, and, and we've got an incredible team here. Our APAs have taken this and have run with it, and they're uh, coming up with creative solutions that really get to the root cause of what brought somebody into the criminal legal system. And in some cases, they're just saying this doesn't warrant criminal charges in the interest of justice, um, and they're doing so in a way that that really respects the humanity of all involved, which is what we all should want from the justice system, whether you know um, you know the folks that are coming in are defendants uh, or victims or family members. Uh, everybody should want uh, individualized justice because, in my view, uh, one size fits all justice is not justice at all. Wow. 
I mean, that's mind blowing and that's amazing. And that's a, that's a, that's a really good example of why these zero tolerance policies don't work. And, uh, I mean, another way to go. And that's just amazing that you're able to get your team on board to do all that and to look behind the curtains and see what was the reason for the crime? What was the reason for the, I mean, it is a crime, like you said, to have that gun, but you don't want to deter other people from calling the police on a loved one because so they won't be charged with a crime. I mean, wow. Right. So, so, you know, on open mic, we, we've interviewed uh, over 10 people who have had convictions overturned. We have interviewed David Moran. We have taken a case for David Moran at the Michigan Innocence Clinic. Uh, we are working our way through the system, but I'm curious what your uh, stance is in Washington County, what you see as your role as a prosecutor to help free innocent people who were convicted by Washington County prosecutors who may not be guilty. So uh, I think that the worst mistake that can be made, not just by the prosecutor, not just by the criminal legal system, but by government as a whole, is to wrongfully convict somebody uh, and send somebody to prison for something that they didn't do. Uh, you know, all of us only have one life to live on this planet. Uh, and when you're sending somebody to prison for something they were innocent of, uh, that is the worst mistake that the government can make. And, you know, I, I, you know, I know you've talked about this a lot on the podcast before, so the statistics may be familiar, but, uh, you know, the, the best data on this suggests that as many as one in 10 people serving time in state prisons are actually innocent of the crime for which they were convicted. And, you know, prosecutors uh, uh, pursuant to the U.S. Supreme Court, pursuant to the uh, rules of ethics, we're supposed to be ministers of justice. And, you know, that's not my phrasing. That's what, that's what the Supreme Court has said. And you can't, in good conscience, uh, just sit back and say, well, that happened prior to this administration. That happened in the past. It's done. We respect finality and allow somebody to be incarcerated for something they didn't do. So, you know, one of the first things that uh, we, we put into place here, and it's still operating on an interim basis, but we're hopeful it will be made permanent uh, uh, soon, is, you know, the county administration and county commission uh, allowed us to temporarily uh, to, to hire somebody on an interim basis to, to lay the groundwork for uh, a conviction integrity and expungement unit, uh, which is going to go back uh, I've already started this work uh, looking into cases in which actual innocence uh, is asserted. And, you know, if we find evidence that suggests uh, that somebody didn't commit the crime for which they were uh, convicted of, uh, we will go into court and we will undo that conviction and we will do that quickly as soon as we are convinced that that person is innocent. We've got just a phenomenal person who's leading uh, this this new unit. Uh, her name's Frances Walters. Um, in addition to being a uh, Washtenaw County native, uh, she came to us. She was the legal director of the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project. So she's personally oh. gotten exonerations for 11 separate uh, clients uh, over the course of her career. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're really grateful to the county for allowing us to stand this up, uh, you know, even before they considered our budget for this year. Uh, we're, we're hopeful that they're uh, going to make this unit permanent because all of us share a responsibility that, um, you know, in, in, in ensuring that this massive injustice of locking away a human being for a large part of their life, ripping them away from their families for something they didn't do, 
that can't happen on any of our mm -hmm. watches. And when it does happen, we have a ethical, a moral, and a legal responsibility to immediately rectify that. And that's what we're committed to doing. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that. We interviewed a woman on the uh, show last week, and I'm going to have my producer send you uh, the interview. For a living, this is what she does, is advise prosecutors on how to set up a really good CIU unit after after watching all 100 of them in the country. She mm -hmm. actually told us there's all, there's 100 of them in this country and there's 6,000 prosecutor offices, which was a little shocking to me. Um, but she says more are being set up every single week. So I'm going to put you guys in touch because she was a fascinating lady and um, she has free resources for people like you. That'd be so great. Thank you. look for that email. Um, I have a question about blanket immunity for police officers and even judges and even prosecutors who um, participate in convicting someone who they know to be innocent or to make, you know, whether it be intentional or pretty close to intentional conduct. A lot of talk is about this blanket immunity where nobody can be charged and these people sit away for 20, 30 plus years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. So the question, the long question is, what's your opinion on blanket governmental immunity for these types of bad actors? So, so, so I think you, uh, you always need to look at the specifics of the case because mistakes, like I said, uh, it is a horrible and unacceptable mistake for the justice system to make uh, when we send somebody to prison for something they didn't do. Um, and I start with that premise. That said, uh, there are times where, you know, even the best intentioned police, prosecutors, judges, they may make mistakes, right? Uh, they may make, make mistakes, uh, for example, thinking that uh, what they're doing really reflects the best evidence. We've seen a number of exonerations uh, in recent years that uh, are, are based on the fact that forensic evidence at the time of the trial uh, was really faulty. But at the time, it was thought to reflect the best practices. So I can't really blame a prosecutor personally or a judge or a police officer or anybody for you know using evidence that at the time they thought reflected the state of the art. Uh, so that's one type of uh, case. And, you know, look, uh, we don't want to prevent people from doing their jobs uh, or, you know, needlessly punish people for making mistakes. We should rectify the mistakes, but there's no need for uh, further consequences for the folks that were involved in that. The other type uh, of mistakes are, are those that I wouldn't really call mistakes. If you are withholding evidence, uh, if you know uh, that you know your case is not just uh, you know weak legally but weak factually, um, and you're withholding evidence, uh, you're fabricating evidence, um, you know uh, any of that, uh, look, uh, you should be held personally responsible for that. Um, we're all officers of the court. Um, certainly, police have an obligation. Judges have an obligation, um, and. You know, uh, I, I don't care what it is. This is a human being's life that is in your hand. It is an awesome power and responsibility. And if you can't be trusted with that, and if you've shown you can't be trusted with that, and you've, and you've been shown uh, not just to make mistakes, but to engage in intentional misconduct that has resulted in an innocent person being put into prison, uh, I don't think you should have immunity. Uh, I, 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 I don't. I think you should face personal consequences because, look, if a, a normal person on the street uh, locked a person in a cage for, let's say, 20 years for no reason, right, uh, not only would that be a very serious crime, 
that person would owe a lot of money to that person uh, if sued in court. And I don't care if uh, you're doing that simply because, you, you know, and you're doing that in a in a way that uh, may seem more acceptable to people, not kidnapping somebody and putting them in a cage personally, but wearing a suit and going into court and intentionally putting somebody for no reason into a cage knowing that they shouldn't be there. Uh, it's the same net effect on somebody's life. And absolutely, if it's intentional misconduct, uh, you should be held uh, to account for that. Next question is about, um, since we've been doing so many of these shows and they are so sad, but we see a ton of jailhouse snitches. We see a ton of bad IDs because of police misconduct. Has anything changed in Washtenaw County since you've taken over the helm uh, to deal with these two areas of potential problems uh, with wrongful conviction? Yeah, you know, and, and this is the other part of a conviction integrity unit that's embedded in a prosecutor's office that I think is really important. One reason that you want to have a conviction integrity unit in a prosecutor's office is because uh, only the prosecutor has easy access uh, to case files, to all the evidence, um, uh, and to all the evidence that may, in fact, demonstrate that a person uh, is innocent. If you, if you talk to lawyers uh, who do innocence work from outside of the prosecutor's office, they will describe, uh, you know, many years of banging their heads against the wall uh, to get evidence that the prosecutor could just, you know, go through their files and dig out, you know, over the course of half a day. So that's one reason it's important to have a conviction integrity unit embedded in the prosecutor's office, because only the prosecutor institutionally has access to all that stuff. But the other reason is to prevent wrongful convictions from happening in the first place. Because a conviction integrity unit should be staffed with somebody who is expert in innocence claims. Uh, ideally, somebody like you know our conviction integrity head, Francis, who comes to this work with years of experience as an innocence lawyer. She's up to date on advances in forensic science, on you know false confessions, on the use of jailhouse snitches, on certain interrogation techniques that can uh, lead to false confessions, which happen far more frequently than anybody wants to believe. And she is a resource that is available to uh, our attorneys uh, who may have qualms about a particular case. And they are encouraged to go to her uh, and say, look, you know, here's something that I'm feeling a little bit uneasy about. Do you think that this bears the hallmarks of, for example, a false confession or of unreliable testimony? What have you seen in your expertise, which spans across the country uh, in similar cases? And in doing that, uh, not only uh, does a conviction integrity unit help to undo past wrongs, perhaps more importantly, uh, they help to ensure that uh, that miscarriage of justice, putting an innocent person behind bars, that it doesn't happen on our watch again. So absolutely, uh, you know, this has happened and, and you know, our, our nascent conviction integrity unit uh, has been brought to bear on several cases that were just troubling our uh, line prosecutors. And, you know, she was able to provide counsel and expertise to help move forward with those with those cases in an, in an ethical way. That's great. If we could, uh, the statistics on those two things are so high that if you get rid of those two, wrongful convictions will plummet, hopefully, you know, 20, 30, 40%. I mean, it just feels like those are the, those are the, the really, really significant bad ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So 
one of my last questions, I'm going to circle back to your time in New York City as a, as a teacher. What, where did you teach in New York City? I taught in the South Bronx. Uh, it was a, a sixth through eighth grade middle school, uh, CIS 339. And I got to teach uh, American history from the Civil War to the present, which is just the best period of American history to teach and particularly to teach to, to eighth graders. Uh, you know, there's so many interesting moral questions, uh, you know, arising from that period of time. So I just I, I just loved it. Uh, I had a, had a great time teaching and, and, and my kids were great. That's great. So my daughter is listening and she just handed me a note. She's teaching in Brooklyn uh, starting in August through city year. I, oh, I don't know if you know what city year is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. city year is this amazing nonprofit and I believe 13 different states. And uh, so she got assigned to New York. She's they're shipping her to Brooklyn and she starts, she's actually training today. She starts in a couple of weeks. So she's super excited. And uh, she talks a lot about criminal justice reform and social issues like this. So I would, I mean, you, you are, I can't wait for her to watch this episode uh, because she, what we're talking about is her dream. And I think you are doing such amazing things in Washington County that I hope the whole country watches. I hope, I hope everybody in Michigan sees what you're doing and I commend you for all of your efforts. Cause they're not easy. I know that, you know, you're changing 200 years of, of, of our criminal justice system. And I think it's just wonderful. And I thank you and just keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for having me on. And we'll have you back in a year or two once we can really show the uh, changes you're making and the, the safety of, of the Washtenaw County citizens um, with these types of, of reformed efforts. So anyway, thanks again for being on Open Mic, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was a pleasure talking to Ellie Savitt, prosecutor of Washtenaw County. What a life he's leading, uh, doing amazing things in Washtenaw County to change the criminal justice system for the citizens in Washtenaw County and hopefully the world. Hopefully everybody's going to see what he's doing and get rid of bail and get rid of bad lineups and all of these things that we talked about. Please share the show, comment, like, subscribe. I'm sure there's a subscribe button somewhere up there. Please, we love having you as someone who watches and listens to Open Mic. We wouldn't do it if you weren't watching and listening, so we really appreciate you. And uh, stay tuned for another episode coming up very soon. Thanks.